Hey, just wanted to say welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. I'm lead pastor Noel Petegrass. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com. Thanks for giving us a listen. In uh, 2007, Barna, have you heard of Barna? He does like church research. Uh, Barna did research this 2007, so it's 15 years ago, but I think it still probably applies today. Uh, in that research, they asked millennials um, what they thought of Christians. And 87% of millennials said that they thought Christians are judgmental. That was uh, the number one complaint that millennials had of uh, Christians, that they're judgmental. And then number two, uh, the number two complaint was that Christians are hypocrites. 85% of millennials in this study said that Christians are hypocrites. So these are the top two complaints of Christianity by non-believers in this age range. And so here we have this passage this morning, which speaks to this idea. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably not surprising that that's true, right? I don't know if that fact that statistic surprised anybody this morning Um, and uh, in some ways it's like a a natural reality right because as Christians we stand for things right we're zealous in our faith and uh, the more zealous we become the more hard stands we take for biblical truths and ideals the more we put ourselves out there we put ourselves on a platform and we expose ourselves to attacks like this right uh, but, you know, it's, it's not just the stands that we take that uh, expose us to this type of criticism. It's the way that we take them. And uh, I think in this passage, that's what Jesus is getting after. And so he, he, he says in this passage, do not judge. This comes to us as part of the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, we've been talking about. We've been studying the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount since November. Maybe earlier. Was it November? Who can... Who remembers better than I? We've been studying this, this sermon for a while. We're, we're here in the third chapter in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. So we're getting close uh, to the end. And Jesus is hammering home some of his main points as he rounds the corner and, and uh, heads down the straightaway. In this sermon, we've heard some of Jesus' most famous teachings. He's taught us that hatred is the same as murder. He's taught us that uh, even looking upon a woman with lust is adultery. He's taught us to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. And then one of our favorites, he he taught us to love our enemies. That one's hard, really hard. But he's also been getting after hypocrisy, big time getting after hypocrisy in this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You've heard me say this before if you've been here more than once, but uh, the term in Greek used for hypocrite, that we translate as hypocrite, it referred to like a, an actor in a play. So Jesus uses this word hypocrite to refer to anyone who performs religious duty for show, right? Anyone who performs um, for the sake of being admired by others or to draw attention is a hypocrite. Literally, an actor. So this is what Jesus is getting after. And, you know, hip- hypocrisy is more than just saying one thing and doing another. It's more than that. 
being a hypocrite can also be doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. So both those things are true of a hypocrite. Today, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to help us see, us, me too, I'd like to help us see that, uh, you know, if we're honest, we're, we're more like these hypocritical Pharisees than we really want to admit, you know? I mean, think about it, you know, like the, the complaints of these millennials are not that different from our own complaints. I mean, who likes to feel judged? I mean, aren't like being hypocritical, that's like one of the worst things you could say about somebody, is it not? I think we'd all be offended if you called, if you called us a hypocrite, you know, it's just, it's, we know deep down that there's something really wrong about being that way. And yet, if we're honest, if we can be honest, and, and I don't know if we can, but if we can be honest, uh, we're more like these hypocritical Pharisees than we'd like to admit. You know, and part of it is because uh, those of us um, who are more faithful, I mean, think about it. You guys, you guys are here this morning. You guys like, have some level of concern for faith. You're trying in some way to follow Jesus. This faith thing, it matters to you. In that way, you're like the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees would have been known as the best followers of God's law in Jesus' day. And it's really easy for us to, to think that only negative things about the Pharisees, but these people were following God's law better than anybody in their day. They were super zealous about following God's law. And uh, it, it led to, or it can lead to, in our hearts, something that a pastor named Larry Osborne calls accidental Phariseeism. See, we don't really mean to become Pharisees. Anybody trying to be a Pharisee? No, we don't really mean to, but we can end up there, you know? It's kind of like dinner at Denny's. You never really plan on going there, you just end up there, you know? <laughs> right? I mean, hey, babe, we're going to go to Denny's tonight. Yeah, so, so there it is. We're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching about walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And he's coming after our hypocrisy. Big time. He's coming hard after our hypocrisy. And I really want us to get that, like, we, we got to stop looking at the Pharisees as those people. We've got to learn to see the Pharisee in me. And so hopefully that's what we can do. I was even, I had the thought this week, like, what if we forgot that we had ever sat in church before? You know, what if we just like, boom, came to the teaching of Jesus and forgot about the traditions that we have, the ways that we've learned to be religious? What if we just came to this passage and we just received it for what it was? You know what I mean? I think sometimes it's like a helpful way. To, to step into the room on a Sunday morning. So let's do that together. So let's take a look at Jesus' teaching. Uh, the first thing that Jesus says in this passage is don't judge. And, and so these are Jesus' three points, I think. At least as I interpret them. Jesus' three points. The first one is don't judge. Verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, like, that doesn't sound foreign to us. The idea, like, don't judge, you know. I mean, who likes to be judged? Nobody likes to be judged. You know, and I thought that it was interesting, you know, the idea that that Barnard research revealed that uh, millennials in this case, but probably not just millennials, if we're honest, really hate the idea of being judged. Like we don't like being judged, you know, and I think like at this point in time, in our current cultural situation, the idea of being told that what you're doing is wrong is super offensive, is it not? 
It's super offensive. And yet Jesus tells us not to judge. <clears throat> you know, in a sense, we mock this phrase. and In a sense, we, we mock the, the mantra of our secular world. But the idea is biblical. It's very biblical. So we've got to take it seriously. So Jesus taught that we should not judge others. And why did he say that? So that we won't be judged. Don't judge others so that you won't be judged. Right? And when we do judge others, he's going to judge us by the same standard that we've used to judge others. We'll be measured by the same standard that we use against others. Uh, he even included this idea in the Lord's Prayer. Did you catch it? The very end of the Lord's Prayer jumps in, verse 14 and 15 in chapter 6 of Matthew. He says at the very end of the Lord's Prayer that if we don't forgive others, we won't be forgiven. So this idea of not judging, it's a big deal. If you want to be forgiven, you've got to learn to forgive. If you don't want to be judged, then you can't judge others. This is what Jesus is teaching. He's speaking to our innate ability to be hard on those around us. He knows that grace and unforgiveness, I'm sorry, grace and forgiveness, they're like contrary to our nature. Grace and forgiveness, they are not easy for us. This is not our like just normal way of being, right? And, and, and all you need to see is children and the way that they behave. And this becomes very clear, right? My kids, this happens 10 times a day. You know, someone does something to them, knocks them, and they spill their milk, and then we've got to fight, because it, the, the natural response is like, oh, I forgive you, Esther, for hitting me and making me spill my cereal, right? It's like very contrary to our nature, this idea of grace and forgiveness. Um, this is what uh, Dale Frederick Bruner says about our proclivity to be hard on others. So this is one of the commentators that I've been reading as we've studied. He says, it's a law of human nature that we constantly undervalue the size of our own faults and overvalue the size of others' faults. But Jesus says, God will judge you by the same standard that you have judged others. I thought to myself, what kind of standard of judgment do I want used against me? What kind of standard of judgment do I want used against me? Am I applying that same standard to others? Because I want grace, right? I want forgiveness. If I mess up, I don't want you to hold it against me. But when someone else messes up, how do I respond? I want a gracious judge. So Jesus' first point, don't judge. His second point, but judge a little. But judge a little, right? I mean, we know that there's right and there's wrong, you know? And even in this passage, like what's the, the picture that Jesus is painting is of a brother who's got something in their eye. Like there's legitimately something in our brother's eye. Now, what's wrong with, with the picture is that the other person has a plank, a bigger object in their eye. But there is something. There is a, a speck of dust. Does that make sense? There is something wrong. So Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't notice sin. He's not saying that you should just be like, ah, oh, it's all grace. There seems to be a way that we're supposed to respond uh, in discernment, right? There's plenty of scriptures that urge us to discern good doctrine from bad doctrine, for example, right? Right beliefs from wrong beliefs. 
Good teaching from bad teaching. Good over evil. Wisdom over folly. Right? There's things that we're supposed to discern. So this passage is not teaching us to not judge anything. There is a way that's good and right for us to have discernment. Right? In fact, uh, Matthew 7.15, we're going to study that in a couple weeks. In that passage, Jesus teaches us that we'll know a true disciple by the fruit that his life produces. Well, how do you know if his fruit is good or bad? You have to use your judgment, don't you? You have to use your discernment. So there's a way that we're called, rightly, to discern, right? So there's a way that we're not supposed to judge, but then there's a way that we're supposed to use judgment and use discernment. And imagine a world in which nobody judged anything. Imagine a world in which godly people never judged right from wrong. This would be a bad world, right? Because things need correction and we need people who will correct them. You know, think about, uh, I don't know who your like go-to person is when you think of historic people of like bravery. You know, maybe it's, uh, well, Martin Luther, right? We're a Protestant church, so Martin Luther is a guy that stood up, right? He stood up for what he believed was right. Uh, and then Martin Luther King Jr., right? What if Martin Luther King Jr. had never said anything? What if he had just gone along? But no, he used his judgment and his discernment. William Wilberforce is another character. The list goes on, right? And, and maybe you have people. Uh, William Wilberforce, that seems a little bit random. Do you guys know who that is? No. no? I, he did a lot to free slaves, I think, in Britain. Anyway, I read an article about him this week, so his name came to my mind. But we need men and women who will discern, right? So do not judge, but judge a little. There's a way of discernment. That is right. So Jesus isn't teaching against that way of discernment. Uh, here, is, uh, here is the type of discernment that he's uh, teaching against. If you put yourself in the place of God, you are making yourself the judge that Jesus tells us not to be. When the problem comes not when we discern right from wrong, but when we put ourselves in the place of God. How many of you notice that we tend to want grace when we screw up, but justice when others screw up? We're the most gracious towards ourselves, right? That's why Jesus uses this example of like the, the plank, the log. It's very uh, exaggerative. Can you imagine walking around with a log in your eye? It, hyperbole is being used here by Jesus, right? But there's just a flaw in us that doesn't administer justice properly. We're too easy on ourselves and we're too hard on other people. And that's what Jesus is coming against. And again, like, I want to say it again. Aren't you glad that our merciful God stands in the place of judgment over you and me? Aren't you glad? I mean, I'll take that arrangement. I would be a terrible judge. But God is merciful. He's gracious. So let's let God stand in the place of eternal judgment. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching. So, okay, we're not supposed to judge, but there is a type of discernment that seems necessary, right? So don't judge, but judge a little. But how we do it, this is the key. We've got to thread the needle, and that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And he's saying it especially in the context of our relationships, okay? Brother to brother, sister to sister, Christian to Christian. So how... Do we judge rightly? Okay, Jesus says, number two, verses three through five, remove your plank first. If you're going to judge rightly, you've got to take the log out of your own eye. 
And like I said already, I mean, seriously, who walks around with a log in their eye? This is a very exaggerative example that Jesus gives, right? It's figurative language, for sure. And the exaggeration is meant to give you like a really clear idea how bad it is to not judge your, yourself and yet to judge other people. Jesus is saying, don't let the big sin in your life overshadow the little sin you're trying to point out in your brother. And it's definitely not a standalone teaching that we see in this passage. The scriptures are full of, of different uh, versions of this same message. Let's go to uh, John 8. You can turn if you want in your Bibles, but it, I'll be there just briefly. So, you, so you're good just listening to me as well. But in John 8, we see the woman caught in adultery. And she's brought before Jesus. Um, and uh, they were ready to stone her for her sin. And I think they had the legal obligation to do so. And uh, the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus, and he says these famous words, Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Oh, you want to stone this woman for her sin? Okay, fine. Whichever one of you is without sin can throw the first stone. I love the way Jesus is here. He always strikes the proper balance between grace and truth. He goes on to say this. Uh, in verse 10, it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Because no one stepped forward to throw the first stone. Right? Because they were convicted. And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He doesn't just reveal our sin. He removes it. Go and sin no more. He offers grace. He offers an invitation to walk in freedom from sin. And I just feel like I'm so much more prone to either drop the hammer of truth and pound somebody over the head with it or to live in this other extreme of just like hyper grace and not acknowledge anybody's sin. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes this is the route that we choose. We just ignore the sawdust, right? Because it's kind of hard and messy in relationship to pay attention to these things. But Jesus does neither. Truth, grace, in equal proportion. Or I should say in appropriate proportion. Jesus gets the proportion right. <clears throat> so Jesus is teaching here that while all forms of correction or discernment are not prohibited, it's the condition of our own eye that's the primary problem. Your problem is the plank in your eye. He's not completely saying not to practice discernment or correction. Again, like you should have friends in your life. And maybe some of you would be friends to me in my life that would point out correction where needed, right? It is, how unloving is it? How unloving would it be to allow somebody to continue to walk in destructive ways? Does that make sense? We, we need to have people in our lives. You need to have people in, our, uh, in your life. You need to be a true brother or sister for other people where you're pointing out the sawdust, right? But he's telling us in this passage that our primary problem is what's in our own eye. And when you think about that, like log in eye, it's obvious. I mean, who can see out of an eye that's got a log in it? It's just like the greedy eye that we talked about in Matthew 6. Uh, there was that weird passage, it's kind of like a, a, a play on words, where uh, Jesus says that uh, there was this eye that brings in light that was actually darkness, right? And I showed you the light bulb that was spray-painted black because the light was not able to work properly because of its greed. This is an eye that does not work properly. 
This eye cannot properly see to help correct a brother or sister. When you've got a log in your eye, it screws up your vision. Is it possible that while you're walking around with this, you're not correctly seeing the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye? The log messes up our vision. <clears throat> Let me put it to you another way. Here's a few examples. Maybe it's like this. Imagine hiring an overweight personal trainer, right? Who would do that? Who would hire an overweight personal trainer? It's like, hey, this is how you get fit. Just do it like I do it. No, it just doesn't work, does it? Or how about uh, going to a beautician with bad hair? Ladies, would you ever go to a stylist that had bad hair? If you didn't like her hair or his hair, maybe you probably would not go to them, right? Like, or, or, or say it another way. Who would ever hire me as their hairstylist, right? How about the uh, conservationist, the ecologist that wears snakeskin boots? Or the dentist with meth teeth, right? These, these are just like oxymorons. Like, you wouldn't go to somebody like this. Right? This is the picture that Jesus is, pa is painting of the person trying to correct the brother with a huge log in their eye. You cannot see clearly when you have a log in your own eye. You've got to get rid of that first. Uh, this is a great quote from a, a pastor named Scott Sauls, and it relates to this idea. It says, if reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than I scrutinize myself, then I'm not reading the Bible correctly. And we want to be a church, like I've challenged you guys with this, and it's, it's one of the reasons I explained being proud of you, because I saw people responding to what's in the Word. Like, we do not want to be the kind of people who hear the Word and don't do it. What good is that? That's hypocrisy. We want to be the kind of people who hear the Word and respond. There is no magic in knowing what the Bible says if you don't do what it says. The magic, if I can call it magic, is in obeying what the Word says. So you get the idea. We've got to get rid of this log in our eye if we're going to help a brother out. You cannot help your brother see his own sin if you've got this log, this plank, in your own eye. The call of Jesus here is to take a look in the mirror before you're critical of someone else. Look at verse 6. This is a... Uh, it was a, a kind of a, a crazy, uh, a, kind of a crazy verse. I'm going to skip back a slide. Verse six: uh, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What in the world could this wordplay mean? Actually, a lot of commentators over the centuries have asked the same question: What does it mean, Jesus? What are you trying to say? Um, it's one of the more astonishing verses in the Sermon uh, on the Mount. Um, and it, I think I would just ease your mind to say that it probably had a much more clear meaning in Jesus' day, right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about um, figurative language, and I gave the example of cutting the cheese. What does it mean to have cut the cheese, right? If I say, Asher, dude, you cut the cheese. I am not thanking him for helping me with my quesadillas, right? Um, <laughs> It's like a, it's a figure of speech. You know what I'm saying? And, and so that's part of what's going on here. Um, so what we need to do is we've got to look at this passage in the context that it's being presented. Okay? And I think that if we do that, um, and, and even though it is a bit debated by commentators, there's some type of discernment that Jesus is teaching with this little wordplay. Okay? Um, 
So dogs, what are dogs in Jesus' day? Well, they were pets, but they could also be wild. You know, have you ever lived in a part of town where there were like wild dogs on the streets? Now, um, at Wilson, we seem to always get little tiny dogs that can't hurt anybody. But imagine if like German shepherds, you know, and like Rottweilers and pit bulls were roaming the streets, right? Uh, So wild dogs could be a bad thing. They could be really harmful. Uh, Pigs, these are muddy animals, right? They're known for rolling around in the slop, for not being very smart. Both wild dogs and pigs in Jesus' day were ceremonially unclean, right? So he's saying these two types of animals are unclean. They've not gotten it right and they're potentially dangerous. So I think what Jesus is saying, it falls in line with what he teaches later in Matthew 10, 14. Check out this passage. He's saying that, um, very similar, in, in Matthew 10, 14, he tells his disciples, as you're going around evangelizing, um, and you reach a place of peace, you should stay there, right? But if you encounter a place or a town that's not peaceful, you just dust off your feet, get out of there, and leave them alone. And so I think part of what Jesus is trying to convey is that when you've judged rightly, when you first remove the plank from your eye, and then you've tried to go help your brother, if they choose to reject the correction, they then become kind of like wild dogs, right? Or pigs. And they're just best left to themselves. Jesus, like, we should receive that not just as advice for how to deal with other people, we should receive that as a warning. Don't you become like a wild dog or a pig because you've chosen to reject correction. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not just advice, it's a warning. We don't want to become like people like this. And I would also say that far and away, the main thing that we should do in relationships with others is persevere. We should try over and over again. But Jesus does say, not just here, but in other places, there comes a point where rejection has taken place. This person's been presented with the gospel. They've chose not to accept it. And then at some point, we're just to dust off our feet and walk away. So again, it's, it's uh, advice, but it's also a warning. So a complicated passage, but I think taken in that light, it helps us to understand that there's a way to judge, right? First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then go to help your brother with their sin. And if you've done it all, you've done everything you can to help your brother, and they still choose to reject that correction, you've got to let them go. So here we are. We, uh, we're not to put ourselves in the place of God as judge. If and when we point out the speck of dust in our brother's eye, we better be sure we've removed the plank in our own eye first. Okay? So here we come to the crux of the message. We've got this plank in our eye. How do we get rid of it? How do you get rid of the plank in your eye? So the next part of the sermon here, the, the last three points, is the technique. Jesus' technique for removing the plank in your own eye. I'm going to show you how to do surgery right now. Plank removal 101. Here we go. Number one, notice three R's. Hit the alliteration right there so you'll remember it this afternoon. you got to research your own heart. Step number one. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. This is what David said. Now, David, not a perfect guy, right? If you read David's story, not a perfect guy, but a guy known as a man after God's own heart, even though he did some bad things, some really bad things. 
The reason he was known uh, as being a, a man after God's own heart is because Psalms like this. These are the words of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He invited the Lord to search his heart. He invited the correction of the Lord into his heart. So we got to search our heart. Another way that we can search our heart is to find a friend. Find a friend that can help you search your heart, right? Hopefully that friend will take the plank out of their own eye and help you remove the speck of sawdust in your own. You need to find a friend. Plank and eye removals are hard. They are hard to do on your own. If you live outside of community, you will not see these things in yourself. I am never aware of the things that are wrong with me, right? This is why God created marriage. (laughs) I'm joking a little bit, right? But you get what I'm saying. You need somebody to help you out. You need someone to help you out. You do. And guys, just a little bit of advice. Come hang out on Thursday mornings. We'll help each other out, and then your wife won't have to. It's way easier, right? It's way easier to be a self-assessor, to have friends who will help you out. We need people around us who will help us to see. We need people around us who will help us to see. And we need to ask them to see the things that we can't see. you got to find some friends that will help you research your heart. Um, a few years back uh, um, in marriage counseling, uh, we would start our sessions with this counselor with this simple prayer. It was this, Lord, help me to see the truth about my heart and the truth about my marriage. And uh, it was subtle, but not subtle. The idea was that uh, I, I, I would come into these sessions without saying this prayer. My tendency would be to come into these sessions hoping that the counselor would fix her. You know what I'm saying? And so the counselor knew that, because I'm probably not the only guy like that, right? And so we prayed this prayer together. Lord, help me to see the truth about my heart. You know, at first I remember like having these feelings like, no, I'm here so that you can tell her what I've been saying along. She's jacked up, you know? I just need you to agree with me. That's why I'm paying you. Just agree with me, right? And then we can get this speck right out of her eye and everything will go on being awesome, right? But that wasn't the prayer that we started with. Lord, help me to see the truth about my heart. And I think this rings true for us. We have to search our own hearts. We have to search our own hearts. You know, um, at one point, I was complaining to my counselor. And uh, this is what he told me. He told me some really hard words. But I needed to hear them. He said, Noel, you've made her to be the problem, and that's the problem. You come across to her as if everything is her fault and like you've got your act together, but you're burying her in your judgment. It was an email, so I have it in writing. (laughs) Man, you need people in your life that will tell you that kind of truth. You need people in your life that will tell you that kind of truth. Your biggest problem is that you think the other person is the problem. That's your biggest problem. It's my biggest problem. Search me, O God, and know my heart. This is Psalm 139. See if there's any offensive way in me. We've got to research our heart if we're going to get rid of the plank in our own eye. The second thing that we've got to do is we've got to receive correction. So you hear it, but are you going to receive it? Are you willing? And I would say that this is like underrated, the hardest part. I'm okay with searching for the answer, like in some ways, showing up to counseling, going to Bible study, you know, trying to be honest with my buddies, 
in some ways, that can even become like just like a thing I do to like make myself seem righteous. I know I get, none of you guys are like this, but I get like this, where I, I get really concerned with looking righteous on the outside. In fact, there's a way in which I can get more concerned with appearing to be righteous and spend more energy appearing to be righteous than to actually do the hard work that would produce legitimate righteousness. Does that make sense? We can get so caught up with what's on the outside. And uh, man, it's hard to actually do something. It's hard to receive correction. So here's the thing, though. When we reject correction instead of receiving it, we, present, uh, we prevent ourselves from receiving Jesus' light yoke. The Bible talks about uh, the ways of Jesus being a light yoke. But when we uh, refuse correction, in a sense what we do is we put a heavy yoke on ourselves. Because now it's all about what I do. It's all about my righteousness. I can't receive grace when I refuse correction, right? If you want to receive the light yoke of grace, you have to receive correction. When you believe that your standing before God hinges on your ability to perform to a worthy standard of achievement, it's easier to hide than it is to receive correction. You know, uh, that's why we tend to like cover ourselves up because it's hard to receive correction. But there's freedom in it. There is such freedom in receiving correction. Failure to remove your plank is the ultimate gospel block. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus Christ came for you, for me, not because of our righteousness. He came to us in the middle of our sin and he'd offered his life as a sacrifice so that we could have right standing before God. Look, Christianity is not a religion based on you being able to do the right things in order to get to God. Christianity is a religion about a God who sent his son to make a way for you and for me in my sin, in our sin, to live peaceably with the Father. And when we refuse correction, what we're saying is not, I got this. I don't need your plan of grace, God. I got this. I'm going to be good enough on my own. In fact, uh, it's not that bad. All the while, I've got this log bulging out of my eye. It is a really big deal. And when you don't want to remove your plank, you block the gospel. You receive a heavy yoke. You bind yourself to this way of being like right all the time, to getting it right all the time. You reject grace. So you've got to receive correction. The third thing that you've got to do is you've got to repent. Plank removal requires repentance. Megan talked about repentance already this morning. Repentance is not just saying I'm sorry, although it probably involves saying I'm sorry. It involves saying I'm sorry and turning away, behaving differently in the future. That's what repentance is. See, we know that Jesus' blood can wash us clean. We know that the act of salvation is one of grace. It's unmerited. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. But he has given us a command, right? Like a little step to take. He's given us a role. And this command in this passage is to remove the plank from our eye. There's something for us to do. And I think it's repentance. Plank removal is an act of repentance. So just like me and the story I shared about my marriage, you got to hear the words. 
You've got to receive correction, but then you've got to do something about it, right? You have to do something about it. In my case, it's like, oh, I remember like when that rested on me. And, and, and look, I'm not saying that she did I mean, there's probably a speck in her eye too, for sure, right? She's a broken person as well. I didn't have to take all of it, but I had to take my part. And so I remember when that rested on me for the first time, I was like, dang, man, babe, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I made you to be the problem. And then I got I to gotta go differently though, right? So I can't just say I'm sorry and then continue on in the same ways. I've got to truly repent and change my ways. This word repentance is like, uh, I always associate it with like uh, hell and brimstone, like preaching. Repent! You know, like the guy on the, the street corner with the sandwich board draped around him and he's just, he doesn't have a relationship with anybody. He's just yelling and screaming, you're going to hell. And he's always attacking, you know, the hot topics of the day. But what was the first thing that Jesus did? What was the first thing that John Baptist said when he brought his, when, when Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom? His first words were not, hey, I love all of you very much. These weren't his first words. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Or the kingdom of God is at hand. And you know what? It is here. It is near. And thank God that Jesus has made a way for relationship between us and the Father. You know, today, it's the kindness of Jesus that calls us to repentance. This morning... If you're feeling that conviction in your heart, you're knowing like, man, I'm not sure that I fully like received the correction that I need to receive, but I want to. If you're like feeling something on your heart, resting uh, or not resting, like if you're feeling like an unrest on your heart this morning, I, I think literally Jesus in his kindness towards you is calling you to repent. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's his kindness that calls us to repentance. He would be really mean if he left us in our folly. He would be really mean if he let us sit there with this big old log in our eye, right? That would be mean. It's his kindness that calls us to repentance. It opens up the possibility for relationship between us and God. Jesus is the solution to the plank in your eye. He's the solution to the plank in my eye. Ignoring our plank, it doesn't make the plank go away. In fact, it does the opposite. It denies the power of Jesus' blood to remove our sin. And it denies us the opportunity to be made right with God. But when we see the plank in our eye, when we see it rightly, not only are we better able to help correct our brother, really cool, not only do we get right relationship with others, super cool, we get Jesus. You get Jesus when you see the plank in your own eye. You get relationship with the Son of God. You get relationship with the Father. And that's why I say it's, it's His kindness that calls us to repentance. It's His kindness. It's not His wrath that calls us to repentance. That's not what the Bible says. It's His kindness that calls us to repentance. Thank God that He doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us in our isolation and our brokenness. He's made a way. And when we repent, when we repent, He doesn't condemn us. He actually opens up the treasure chest. I just, I like had this picture of Jesus like this morning, even before us. Treasure chest right here. 
Jesus holds the key. He sticks his key in the treasure chest, opens it up, and he's like, here. This is what you have. The key has something written on it. Repentance. Here's the treasure. It's all yours. Everything. Everything in God is yours to have through repentance. Do you want Jesus this morning? (laughs) Are you tired of walking around with this enormous plank in your eye? You know, it gets kind of hard to manage life after a while. It takes a lot of work to manage life with this huge plank in your own eye. Are you ready for him to remove it? This is what we celebrate when we come to the table, right? This is what we reenact. This is what we remember. We remember Jesus' body and his blood broken for us. Broken for the planks in our eye. So we're going to sing a song next. This song is about searching our heart. Because I use Google to find a really good song on topic today. Let's reflect as we, as we listen and as we sing along with this song. But let's also take this opportunity to truly search our hearts. This morning, search your heart. Ask the Lord. Is, Lord, is there anything in here? Is there a plank that i got to remove? Reveal it to us. Right? Reveal it to us, God. Let me pray. Father, I do not leave us alone. Right now, God, do not leave us alone. Pester our hearts so that we can see the plank that's in our eye, and we could go to you to see it removed, Father. I pray against any resistance that the enemy would bring that would keep us from just dealing and making war on this sin that's in our lives, Lord. So uh, as we sit here, Lord, and we consider and we search our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would come.